The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Morning, church. How are we? It's a little hot. Great to see you. Uh, If you're new around here, my name's Brian, and I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor here at Steadfast Church. And I want to just let you know if you are new, maybe kind of kicking the tires on Christianity or on this church specifically, uh, right after the gathering today, we have a little thing we call Open House, which is just kind of a drop-in. Some of our staff and uh, elders and leaders will be there just to get to know someone, to ask questions you might have about the church. We'll have, uh, I think, some cookies and lemonade and that kind of thing. So you go out these doors and take a right, and it'll be in one of the classrooms back over there. You'll see a sign that says Open House. So we'd love you to just drop in with us, spend a few minutes with us, learning more about how you can get more involved here if that is your desire. So um, glad you're here. You guys ready to study the word? I hope so, because that's all about all I know how to do. Page 922 in your pew Bible, if you got one of those, if you got your own Bible, I don't know what page it is, but it's going to be Philippians chapter 3, I can tell you that. Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning there, um, it occurred to me, as followers of Jesus, we are entering this new year by faith. And what I mean by that is that we believe God is present here in 2024. So we want to treat the Lord as if he is real and present with us moment by moment, knowing that God stands ready to bless us. And I don't mean prosperity and abundance and and, and, and material blessing necessarily. What I mean is the cross of Christ makes it obvious that God desires our good with all his mighty heart. And so we have every incentive to seek the Lord and to seek his blessing and his favor in this new year. And as we're doing so, we're kind of as a church going back to, as we call it, square one, going back to the beginning sort of recalibrating ourselves around this renewed vision that we believe the Lord has given us for the life and the future of our church. And I don't say this often, but if you were not with us last week, I would highly recommend that you go back and that you either listen or watch. We're on whatever, Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube and all that stuff, but go find us and go back and and watch or listen to that message because um, each week kind of stacks on top of the other, okay? Now, just to give you, I used to call it like the Reader's Digest version, but nobody knows what Reader's Digest is anymore because I'm old. And so I'll give you the Insta story version. (laughs) We, last week, we sort of of, uh, uh, declared this new kind of renewed vision statement that we believe the Lord's given us for the life of the church. You can put it on the screen, um, is that we exist to proclaim the good news of Jesus for the joy of all people to the ends of the earth. Now, there's nothing new about that. That's as old as the scriptures, right? But, it, but it's a renewal for us around these things, that we exist to proclaim the good news of Jesus for the joy of all people to the ends of the earth. And over the next three weeks, my hope is to, to help us understand how exactly uh, we are trying to go about pursuing that vision uh, by God's grace. The mission's clear. As I said last week, the mission is given to us by Jesus. It doesn't change. Uh, in Matthew 28, he says, go make disciples. Like, that's the mission. Go make disciples of all nations. But if you read the scriptures carefully, what you'll find is that there are three 
primary callings of every disciple. Okay, one is calling, a calling to God. The second is a calling to one another as the people of God. And then the third is a calling to God's world. We are to love the Lord, love one another, and love our neighbor. And so for us, the strategy, if you will, for how we want to go about making disciples for the joy of all people is simply this. You can put that on the screen as well. That we will glorify God as his disciples by knowing Christ, becoming a family, and loving our neighbor. Knowing Christ, becoming a family, and loving our neighbor. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at these in series. So today we're looking at knowing Christ. Okay. So Philippians chapter three is where we are. I'm going to read for us uh, the first 11 verses, uh, and then I'll pray for us and we'll dive in here. Okay. You guys ready? All right. Follow along as I read Philippians chapter three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to be together with these brothers and sisters. Um, My heart leaps every Sunday morning that I get to enter this room and when I hear the people begin singing. Lord, you know we are a broken and dysfunctional family, but we are family nonetheless. Brothers and sisters, Um, in the Lord, united as sons and daughters of the Most High God because of Jesus. We have the right to be called the children of God, and so we are. Father, I know that there may be people in this room this morning who, who do not know you, who do not belong yet to this family, and I pray this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would do the work that only you can do through your word and by your spirit to to make hearts new, to bring encouragement, to bring comfort, to bring conviction, to bring rebuke if necessary, but more than anything, that um, by the end of our time together that we would know and love Jesus more than we did when we came in the doors, that you would be real to our hearts, Lord. 
We need you. I need you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help me as I deliver this word to rightly divide it, that it might edify um, the saints, encourage even unbelievers, and most of all, glorify you. We love you. We thank you for this opportunity to study the Bible. And we ask your blessing over our time in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. 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 All right, so I'm going to give you my, my point here, and then uh, we'll look at the text again. The first thing I want you to see here in, in Philippians 3, uh, the first six verses, is the aim of our ministry. The aim of our ministry. Paul says, finally. Now, you know he's a preacher because he says, finally, and he's got two more chapters to go. <laughs> it's like, final point, and then we preach for 15 more minutes. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Finally, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. He says, to say the same things to you is, is, is no trouble for me and it's actually safe for you. In other words, he's saying, what I'm about to say to you is the same thing I have said to you over and over and over again. Paul planted this church about 10 years prior. He finds himself now in prison. He's writing a letter back to them. And he says, listen, to say the same things I said 10 years ago is no trouble for me. Because that's the, I, I got one track on this record, Right? I got one, one song on my playlist, and it's the gospel. So I'm going to keep hammering the gospel, and it's safe for you. And, and so he tells them to rejoice, and, and it's because Paul's aim is their joy. And that's our aim, too. That's why we put it in that vision statement, proclaiming the good news of Jesus for the joy of all people to the ends of the earth. Joy is the theme of the entire letter of, of Philippians Because Paul knows the result of the good news is joy. And that makes sense, right? When you hear good news, it does something in your soul, right? You feel something about it. And so the result of the good news of Jesus is the joy of people. But Paul also knows that there are things that can rob us of joy, that can steal our joy. Things that creep into our lives, things that creep into the church that can steal our joy. And so notice how the tone changes here in in chapter 3, verse uh, 2. He says, look out. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's a warning. And who's he speaking of? He's speaking of a group of people who became known as the Judaizers. Now the Judaizers were Jewish believers who were holding fast to the traditions. So um, you probably know this, but Jesus was Jewish. And he ministered in Jewish areas and all the first disciples were Jewish. In fact, it's, it's likely that the first disciples heard the Great Commission as go into all the world and make disciples of all Jews. When Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, they probably heard that as you will be my witnesses to Jews in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But what was happening through the book of Acts is that not just Jews, but all people, Gentile people, were starting to hear and respond to the gospel. So this question arose, what do we do about people who don't have a Jewish heritage? What do we do about these people who don't have any background with the law, with the Old Testament, or just the Testament at the time, uh, the writings? What do we do with these people? And the Judaizers, well, the question was this, should Gentile, that is non-Jewish believers, should they be required to observe all the Jewish laws and rituals and commandments? And the Judaizers, they said, yes. They said, in order to be a believer, a true Christian, you have to first become Jewish. In fact, there's a place in the scripture where the, where the Judaizers say, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Okay, so they were, they were keen on observing all the laws and rituals. On the other hand, you had Paul. And Paul said, no. 
Paul said, Jesus plus anything as a requirement for God's full and final acceptance is a whole different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all. Paul here calls it confidence in the flesh. Another way we could understand that is human effort apart from the grace of Jesus. Human effort. Three times here in the passage, he says, we should not put our confidence in the flesh. We should not put our confidence in the flesh. And and, and he basically explains to us, and I'll sort of paraphrase, I tried it. I I tried putting confidence in the flesh. Um, In verse four, if... uh, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. He goes, hey, you want to stack up resumes here and see who's a better Jew? I got you beat all day long. And he gives here, because he's Paul, seven reasons. Now, seven's the number of completion and perfection according to the Jews. So he gives seven reasons why he is the ultimate Jew, And I don't have time to dig into them, and it really is not essential for what we're learning in the text today. Um, But he goes, he talks about uh, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, which was the the best you could get, a persecutor of the church because they hated Christians. Uh, Listen to this, verse six, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like you, you get all 613 commands out there and you go, here they are. And he goes, yep, did them all. What else you got? Okay. In other words, Paul was the best of the best when it comes to being a Jewish person, when it comes to being righteous under the Jewish law. He was the best of the best. And yet, Paul was insecure, radically insecure. Paul was constantly striving to do and to be better because he never kind of knew where he, where he stood with God. Paul was lacking joy. And in Acts, he tells us he was full of rage. You can't be full of joy and full of rage at the same time. It doesn't work, right? And so he knew that human effort... Now, listen, once he came to know Jesus, once he was saved by Christ, he was full of joy and he let go of all his striving to be the the, the perfect Jew. But Paul knew that human effort does not lead us to joy. You know what human effort leads us to? Pride and shame. Because when, when you pull yourself together and and, and you do what you think you're supposed to be doing and and you get it right and it actually works a little bit for you, you generally become really prideful and you got your act together and you look down at everyone else who doesn't have their act together and you go, why can't they be as good as me? You wouldn't say it because you're a good Christian, but you'd think it. Why can't these people get their act together? Why? You know, you start to become self-righteous about the things that you have had success at. But what happens when you can't seem to stop tripping over your own shoelaces spiritually? And you can't get your act together. And you try and you fail. And you try and you fail. What do you feel? Shame. Because you're comparing yourself to those knuckleheads who look like they got their act together. And you don't measure up. You're full of pride we're full of shame. Sometimes we're full of both at the same time because we, we got it together over here and so we can compare and sort of look down, but we don't have it together over here. So we kind of just put that in the back and don't let anybody see it. 
our hearts, yours and mine, are so prone to wander. Either, either by disobedience, right? Just kind of giving God the finger and doing whatever it is that we want to do with our lives. Or by relying on our obedience, and measuring ourselves by how well we're doing and according to God's standards. I wonder, I wonder where you find yourself this morning. When it comes to human effort, when it comes to confidence in the flesh, where do you find yourself? What do you measure by? Some of us measure by our morality. We're good people. We don't do those things that other people do. Some of us measure by our avoidance of sin. Some of us measure by our knowledge, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Bible. By the way, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that you find life in them and you miss me. Some of us measure our righteousness by our church attendance. Um, sidebar, when, when at our old building, not here, but at the previous uh, building where we worshiped corporately, um, we, we had uh, an old, it was an old Sunday school building that we had for offices and kids space. Many of you remember that. And um, back in, I think it was 2017, we had to gut everything and clear out all the old junk and then remodel for our kids ministry. And as we were cleaning things out, one of the things that I found in that building was a little um, trophy about this big. And if I remember correctly, it's gold-plated, of course, and it has a guy like this with a wreath around his neck. And the nameplate, the nameplate on the, on the trophy said this, um, winner of the Sunday School Attendance Award. <laughs> Some of you got those in your closet, I know, but... <laughs> and listen, this is my inner cynic, right? But I'm thinking to myself, okay, so... When you die and stand before the Lord, and, and he goes, why should I let you into my heaven? You're going to be like, look at my trophies. I went to Sunday school every week for like 57 years. Doesn't that count for something? And he'll go, no. What counts, the only thing that counts for anything is what did you do with me? Are you clinging to me by faith? And I'm not saying Sunday school and church attendance is not important. Of course it is but not as a measure of our righteousness. Paul says here, we are the circumcision. Okay, the the Judaizers called themselves the circumcision or sometimes the circumcision party. Doesn't sound like a party to me, but that's what they called themselves. And he goes, no, 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 we, we are the circumcision who who have received Christ by faith. Uh, This is verse, where am I at here? Three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, he says, when you receive Jesus, when you receive the finished work of Christ in his life and death and resurrection with the empty hands of faith, what God does is he comes into your life and your old, um, your old life that is confidence in the flesh, that is uh, trying to attain and achieve and perform and, and be acceptable, your old life that does your own thing and, and runs from God and creates your own rules, that gets cut off, cut away, circumcised off of your heart and you become a new creation. And he says here, there are three marks This is a way that you can evaluate. Have I truly been regenerated? Have I truly met Jesus? Has has the gospel actually come into my heart or am I still trying to perform to be accepted by God? Here's the three marks. He says, we worship by the spirit. I love that. 
You know why? Here he's not primarily talking about singing, by the way, but a posture of our, of our whole life um, that it's for God, that we live for him. And the beauty of this is, guys, we don't have to be good at it because it's the spirit within us who cries, Abba, Father. It's the spirit within us who utters groans to the Lord that are too deep for words. It's the spirit who does the work in us. We worship by the spirit, okay? He says we glory in Christ Jesus. Another way of translating glory in is to boast in or to rejoice in Christ, okay? So we have that joy, 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 joy down in our hearts, yeah, okay, so. We worship by the spirit, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in our ability by human effort to be pleasing to God. It's all by grace. Do those marks describe you this morning? That you worship by the spirit, that you rejoice in Christ Jesus, and that you put no confidence in your ability apart from grace to do anything that's pleasing to the Lord. You guys with me so far? Okay, let's move on because this is the, maybe the, if I can say it, the more important section of the text related to what we're talking about this morning. I want you to see here, I want you to see here in the, these last verses, uh, the aim of our lives, the aim of our lives, verses seven through 11. Let me just reread them really quick. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul's telling us here is that when the good news of Jesus dropped in his heart, now remember last week, I showed you that Paul was uh, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He actually oversaw the murder of Stephen, the first Jewish, or the first Christian martyr. And then in chapter nine of Acts, Paul meets Jesus, and he has a radical transformation. If you haven't, you can read that on your own. It completely changed Paul's system of personal spiritual accounting. And here's what I mean by that. Everything in Paul's life that he thought was a gain, all the things that he thought went into the asset column for him, he found out his heritage, his education, his power, his prestige, his morality, his status, all those things, apart from Jesus, liabilities. They're not assets, they're liabilities. And he says, if I must lose it all to gain Christ, it's worth it. Because Christ is the ultimate gain. I wonder if you believe that this morning. Because here's the reality. In order to receive Christ, we receive him, as I say all the time, with empty hands, by the empty hands of faith, right? We receive the finished work of Jesus. Well, guess what? In order to receive something, if you got anything in your hands, you got to let that stuff go in order to receive the finished work of Jesus, yeah? Okay, so if there's anything that we are holding on to for worth, identity, righteousness, status, meaning, and we are unwilling to let go of those things in order to receive Christ, that might give you an indication as to what your heart is actually, what's most important to your heart, 
right? What, what, what you are idolizing. What, 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 if you can't let go of something in order to receive Christ, uh, that might help you see what the most important thing in your life is. Now, verse eight, I find fascinating. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Does anyone remember where Paul is in this moment? Prison. So this isn't theory. He literally has lost everything. He's in a jail cell. Okay, probably chained to a Roman guard. He got a little bit of parchment. He was able to scratch out this letter. He has lost it all. He's lost his status. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his position. And he says, it doesn't matter. I, I, I consider everything that I had before, the ESV translation calls it rubbish, which is a rubbish translation. Okay? To be honest, like, I, I get it. I know why they did it. But this word, this is a strong word. Okay? Um, sometimes, sometimes strong points call for strong language. And Paul uses strong language here, okay? Um, the word rubbish is just too nice. You know, it's very British. It's very polite. And what Paul means by this, not to get too graphic, is the stuff that leaves your body that you immediately flush away. That's, ex that's precisely what he means by this. So take every accomplishment I've had in my life apart from Jesus, take everything I have strived for, I almost said striven, <laughs> Everything that I've tried to achieve on my own, everything that I have stood on as my righteousness and my confidence, take all that stuff and compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it's all flushable. All that matters is that I am found in Christ. He says, not standing on my own righteousness, but standing on the righteousness of God. Which shows us there's, there's two, ultimately two ways to live. We can stand on our righteousness, our achievements, our performance, or we can stand on the righteousness of Christ. Now, I will be honest and tell you, this one makes a whole lot sense to our hearts, a whole lot more sense than this one does. Because the world we live in is a world of performance-based acceptance. If you do well, you're rewarded. If you don't do well, you are punished. Okay? That's the world we live in. That's what all of us know naturally. If I'm good and I do good and I perform well, I, there's success for me over here. Okay? When you hear um, not do more, but it is done, that doesn't really make sense. But here's the reality. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite verses of all time, in verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's wild, y'all. Like if you ever just sit down and meditate on that verse alone, I, it will make you weep and rejoice at the same time. That, that God made Christ who knew no sin. We know Jesus is perfectly God, perfectly man. He, he um, uh, maybe I should say fully God, fully man. He's tempted in all the ways that we're tempted. He never sinned. He never failed. He never gave in to any of the stuff that we give into. He, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law in our place because we couldn't. And God made him 
to become sin. In other words, to become the embodiment of all of our sin and our shame and our failure and all of our human effort and all the the consequences of all of our confidence in the flesh. Jesus took the guilt of all of that on himself. All of it, every ounce of it, past, present, and future. And when Jesus went to the cross and those nails went through his hands and that crown of thorns was shoved onto his head and, and, and he was gasping for breath on the cross and he said, it is finished. You know what? He meant it. All of your sin, past, present, and even future was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. And he died and he was buried and on the third day he rose again and in his rising, he conquered sin and death and hell for you so that anyone, 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 anyone who would put their hope and trust in Jesus, who would receive his finished work with empty hands is not only forgiven of sin, but given freely the righteousness of God. Of God. It's not just that you're called righteous. He says you are called the righteousness of God himself. That is crazy. So that when God looks at you and you're still tripping over your own shoelaces, he goes, there's my spotless, perfect, beloved son or daughter because he sees in you his own righteousness. Y'all don't get it and neither do I. Like if we got it, it would change everything. And it would, it would make our hearts explode with joy to know that everything that I deserve went to Jesus and everything that Jesus deserves comes to me. Everything. And not only that, it would make all other attempts of ours at righteousness totally flushable. You compare what you're given in Christ to everything else that you try to show yourself worthy and you're like, flush. Which is why Paul can say, like, take it all away, it doesn't matter. I have Jesus, I have the righteousness of God. Okay, this always happens to me. I got 10 minutes left and now I got to the meat of what we actually wanna see. Paul says, what is of surpassing worth is to know Christ. To know Christ. He says it twice in these last four verses. To know him. To know him. That's the language of experience, y'all. He's like, he's not saying, I want to know more theology. He's not saying, I want to know the lyrics to that song. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. See, spiritually speaking, knowledge without experience leads us to a very thin and hollow faith that dries out super quick, especially when you undergo pain and suffering and hardship. See, Paul here, he says, I want to know him. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to become like him. Okay, Paul is not a glutton for punishment. He's not begging for pain, right? He's not a masochist or a sadist, one of the two. He's not one of those. Here's what Paul's saying. If my, if my highest aim in life is to know Christ and suffering is gonna lead me to know Christ more deeply, bring it on. 
If my highest aim in this life is to know Jesus Christ and suffering is gonna lead me a little bit closer to him, then I welcome it into my life, which is why Paul can say, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Paul wants whatever is ahead for him. And we know there was a lot of pain ahead for him. He didn't quite know yet, but it was coming. Whatever lies ahead, he wants it to draw him closer and closer and closer to Jesus. What is it that you want in 2024? For Paul, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. It is his most valuable aim. It is the one thing that he knows will bring more contentment and more delight and more peace and more comfort and more joy into his life than any other pursuit. I've been rereading the book, uh, Knowing God. It's by J.I. Packer, who's a Canadian theologian, passed away sadly in in, uh, 2020. Uh, very fruitful life, and if you've ever read any of his works, blows your mind. And um, I think it was in the third chapter of Knowing God, he, he says this, and I thought it was so poignant. And really listen to what he says here. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know Christ, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you understand that the main business of your life is to know Jesus Christ, everything else kind of falls into place. It doesn't mean you don't experience pain and suffering and hardship and setback and trial, but it means it's put in its proper perspective. What's that old hymn go? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sign me up. Now, that raises a question, and here's why I want to spend the rest of our time together. How do we then go about knowing Jesus Christ? (laughs) What does it look like to know Christ? Well, how do you know anybody? You spend time with them, right? That's the way you build relationship is that you spend time with people. And, and what better thing to give ourselves to than knowing Jesus Christ, spending time with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself calls that abiding. John 15, abide in me and I abide in you. So I started thinking, okay, the most valuable commodity that any of us have is our time. And oddly, maybe uniquely, I think time is the only commodity that all of us are given that we all have exactly the same amount of in a given week. We all get 24 hours in a day. We all get 168 hours in a week. Level playing field for every single human being. Okay, so then I'm thinking, how do, I wonder how we use our time. How do you and I use the 168 hours a week that we are given? And here's what I found through Googling, you know. Um, I didn't like poll people. (laughs) On average, the average American adult sleeps about 47 and a half hours a week. I know some of you are like, that ain't nearly enough. I get it. But about, about 47 and a half hours a week is how much the average American sleeps. The average American works 
about 34 and a half hours a week. Okay, now that includes full-time and part-time and some of you who are full-time and do about part-time's worth of work. Um, 34 and a half, you know who you are. Uh, long time ago, I called them clock watchers because they would wait to clock in and then wait to clock out um, and then do nothing in between. Uh, food, okay, preparing, eating, cleaning up after meals. The average American spends about 12 hours a week doing that, okay? Um, all things bathroom, We'll just leave it at that. About four hours a week. Wives, don't nudge your husband. Okay? <laughs> average American, about four hours a week. How much time do you think the average American spends on their phone? 26 hours a week. On average. Okay, so that leaves us with about 44 hours left in our week, which is about six hours a day for everything else. Okay? Okay, so I wanna to speak to those of you in the room who maybe don't have good rhythms set now for following Jesus. As a starting point for a life with Christ, as a starting point, as a, as a starting rhythm for pursuing Jesus, for knowing Jesus, I wanna ask you, is knowing Jesus worth at least 2% of every day of your life? 2%. I think most Christians would say, yeah, of course he's worth 2% of my day. That's 30 minutes. That's 30 minutes, okay? Um, and, and here's, if you don't have good rhythms set up, I know some of you have been following Jesus, you know, you were born on the altar basically and have been in church your whole life and you have good rhythms, praise God, for prayer and scripture and, and worship and all those things. And, and many of us don't, if we're honest, right? So for, for any of you who don't have good rhythms, I would, I would really press you towards beginning with time in God's word. And, and I, wanna sh I wanna share with you some uh, results that I found from a study. Now, you know I've been pushing this five day a week Bible reading plan, okay? And I'm gonna keep pushing it, because it's good. I've heard from three, four people since January 1st who've been doing this plan and have gone, this thing's wild, this is awesome. I'm learning things, I'm growing. Dots are being connected for me, and uh, it's really helping me with my rhythms of following Jesus, okay? So if you have your own thing, go for it. If you don't have a thing, go for this, and here's why, okay? The Center for Bible Engagement is an international organization. They did a survey of 40,000 people. That's a lot of people, okay? And they, they were um, interviewing them about Bible engagement, okay? Because that's what they do. <laughs> and, um, and, and here's what they found. And I, I, this, was, this is shocking. Okay, for people who read the Bible anywhere from once to three times a week. And once could be you opened to Philippians 3 this morning. Okay, one to three times a week. You know what they found? Little to no impact on your life at all. That irregular reading, one to three times a week, had negligible, like three times was like a little bit of bump, but one to twi once to twice, really no effect. Three times, minimal effect. However... Once you got to four times a week or more, the results went dramatically differently, okay? People who were in the scripture, reading a chapter or you know, some verses or whatever, four times a week or more, here's what they found. Loneliness dropped 30%. Anger issues dropped 32%. Feelings of being spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Alcohol abuse dropped 57%.
Pornography use dropped 61%. Sex outside of marriage dropped 68%. On the other side, sharing your faith rose 200%. Discipling others rose 230%. Memorizing scripture rose 406%. It's almost like when God said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, he meant it. So if you don't have a rhythm already established, please get your nose in this book. It will change your life. At least four days a week. And I, it took me years to, to establish that habit. I had starts and fits for a long portion of my life. But by God's grace, one day I woke up and went, I'm getting in this word. And this plan has helped me for many years in a row now and I would commend it to you. We have some available. I think I said last week we had them and we didn't, so I apologize for that, but we have more printed that are out, I think at the table on your way in that little glass vestibule area, they're out there. Okay, now, here's some ways we're gonna, that's for you to do. You gotta get yourself in the word, okay? I gotta wrap this up. Here's, here's some ways we wanna come alongside you this year to help you know Christ more deeply. First of all, Abiding with God in his word. I just talked about that. Abiding with Christ in prayer. Um, we're, I'm, I'm in the beginning stages of working on a, a prayer, a very simple prayer guide for you for the season of Lent, which starts one month from today, the 14th of uh, February. We'll start the season of Lent. It's a 40-day journey towards Easter. We want to equip you with a very simple prayer guide to help you establish a rhythm of prayer um, personally uh, to abide with Christ in prayer. We'll also in, in the fall do a 21 days of prayer and fasting. Um, I'm gonna ask you in a couple weeks to pick one person. To, you can be praying now about that one person. Who's the one person that God wants you to pray for this year that they will come to know Christ? We're gonna pray consistently for our one, okay? Every, well, regularly. Pray for one person. And I want you to know, every single Sunday, uh, up in one of these upper classrooms, um, early in the morning, about eight o'clock, 8.30, there are people up here who are praying, not only for this gathering, uh, but for you and for other issues. And if you wanna establish a rhythm of prayer with other people, you can just show up a little bit early and pray with some folks on Sunday morning. And I would commend you to do that as well. Okay, I wanna really quickly, we're gonna help you know Christ through preaching this book. Shocker. So coming up after this series, we're gonna start a series called At the Table. It's, um, it's looking through the Gospel of Luke at all the meals that Jesus shared with other people. And what, what we're gonna do, a meal is like one of the most intimate things you can share with someone else, like to get to know them, right? Like, I mean, you can eat McDonald's by yourself, you know, but when you go into someone's house for dinner, that's an intimate occasion. And we're gonna learn from Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna watch Jesus interact with all kinds of people and see how, what we can learn from him about hospitality and, and generosity and, and proclaiming the good news and loving people who are very different than us. That's coming up, uh, we'll finish that up at Easter. We're gonna start a series after that called Accidental Heretic. We're gonna be looking at five of the most common heresies that even Christians believe. Things that prevent us from knowing Christ. And that's exciting, so we're gonna look at that. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna get into the book of Esther this year. Um, we've got a series called Made for This. We're gonna look at the sovereignty of God and how God is at work in our lives even when we can't see him. You know, God is not mentioned by name in the entire book of Esther, but he is totally at work. 
So we're going to look at, through the, the lens of Esther's story, um, what it looks like for God to be at work in our lives, even when we can't see him working. From there, we'll go to the book of Jude, a series called Contend, uh, where we're going to be looking at what it means to stand firm in the faith uh, with all the stuff coming at us in this world, okay? Uh, in the fall, we're going to do a series I've creatively titled The Marriage Series, and uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. We're going to talk all things marriage. Um, we want you to have the most fruitful, God-honoring, fulfilling marriage that you can possibly have. And, and if you're not married, this is still for you because the majority of us are going to be married at some point in our lives, uh, married or remarried. And so we're going to talk about men and women and relationships and what it looks like to have a healthy marriage that honors Jesus. After that, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer in a series called In Asheville as in Heaven. And we're going to learn how to pray from Jesus. Okay, and then that'll take us into the Advent season. So those are the series that are coming up. Um, you know we've got, in terms of studies and classes, we have men's Bible study and women's Bible study that are ongoing. Um, we've also, Jimmy is, Pastor Jimmy is working on equipping classes um, that some of them will be based on books, some of them will be based on doctrines that will help us know Christ more deeply. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And also community groups, as I've mentioned, are starting up again here soon. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. But that is a way for us to know Christ together, to practice all the one another's of scripture together. So those are some of the ways that we're gonna try to come alongside you and help you know Christ more deeply this year. We want to, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, work with you for your joy. And we, take, we, we find joy by knowing Christ. Now, uh, I've gone way long. Let me, and, and ironically, I had like a whole lot less words in my notes, but I talk a lot. So I got three questions we're gonna put up on the screen for you. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen, but I would like you to take these questions with you. And then uh, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna move into communion and I'll explain that in a second. First question is this, do I know Christ? Very simple. Do I know him? Do I really know Jesus? Can, are those three marks that, that Paul talks about? Worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Do those describe me at least a little bit? That because of God's work in me, that those things are coming out of me. Do I know him? Uh, if you don't, today's, today's a good day to come to, to know him. And I'd love to talk with you about that. Secondly, where does, quote, confidence in the flesh show up in my life? This is a lifelong battle for every one of us. Right, because all of our hearts go back to self-righteousness, go back to trying to prove and justify ourselves. Um, so, where just examine your life? Where do you find that confidence in the flesh, human effort apart from God's grace, shows up in your life? And then third, what's one step that I can take this year, by grace, to know Jesus more deeply? Maybe it is getting in the Word. Maybe it is. Um, learning to pray more faithfully. Maybe it is joining a community group or just being more regular in your attendance at, at church here, okay? I don't know what it is for you, but what's one step that, that I can take by grace to know Jesus more deeply? All right, I'm gonna pray for us. Uh, then we'll have a moment of silence. And then when I get up, we'll open the communion tables. If you are a follower of Jesus, um, you are welcome to these tables where we remember the body and blood of Jesus, that his body was broken for us to heal us and make us whole, that his blood was spilled for us to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. And if you're not a Christian, you can just stay in your seats. 
uh, during these times, but we'll start with the back row. You can make your way forward, take a piece of the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows, and then we'll go row by row until everyone kind of comes through the line. You're not compelled to do this, but if you want to do this as a believer, we are offering this for you. Uh, The band's gonna lead us in a couple more songs, and then I'll give us a couple last announcements and a benediction, and we will get on our way. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that it is born fruit by your grace and your spirit. Help us to know you. Help our one aim in this life to be to know Christ. And as we know you, would you fill us with the joy that only you can give. We love you, not nearly as we should, but we love you because you loved us first. And so Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us for the glory of God and for our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus and we pray by the power of the spirit. Amen.